Happy holidays, listeners. Christopher, Stacy, and I are taking some time off to spend with our families during the holidays. This episode is a re-release of last year's Books of the Year episode, which originally aired on November 26, 2019. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here with a new episode for 2021 on January 5th. Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome to this episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet here in the beautiful eastern Sierra of California. I'm Christopher. I'm Stacy, And we're joined, to, as always, by producer Doug. Hey, Doug. Good morning. Good morning, Doug. Good morning. So for this episode, you know, it's nearing up the end of the year, and one of my favorite parts of the end of the year is looking at everyone's best of lists yes. and like agreeing and disagreeing with them. So um, Stacy and I decided we're going to do a very special episode here. We're going to combine adventure books and conversation into one segment and talk about the, the adventures books. of reading books. Adventures and of reading books. We're going to have a conversation about it. Yeah. And who better to have that conversation with than our local bookseller, Dave Leonard of the Bookie Joint. Welcome, Dave. Welcome, Dave. Thank you for inviting me, Stacy, Christopher. We're so happy to have you Absolutely. here. Absolutely. But Dave, you um, you've got a bit of an accent. So can you tell us about your adventure, <laughs> the adventure that brought you to Mono County? Because I'm guessing you're not a native. <laughs> I am not a native of Mono County, um, but I've been here for 24 years. That's close. Um, that makes you native. Yeah. Yes. Um, my accent is English, though. Okay. And I, I lived in England from the age of 10 until I was about 21. Wow. So, and what brought you here? I came here to teach skiing. Really? Wow. I didn't yes. know. No, well, no wonder your children are such good skiers. Yes, yes, that's, it's in the genes. My wife, yeah. too, is, yes. is, is she's yes. a better You're... skier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, that's great. And you, do, you still, do you still have time to ski? Um, I don't ski so much this uh, anymore. Yeah. But um, I, I get a pass every year, and I ski when I can. Yeah. Um, and I still like it, but I, I like the summertime more now. I'm I'm totally with you on that <laughs> myself. Yeah. But and the bookie joint is my favorite store in the area. Mine I have too. to say, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come come to be involved with the bookie joint? Well. Um, I was painting houses about uh, 15 years ago, and a friend of mine was working there, and um, they closed it, and our wives were talking, and they said, oh, you should, Dave would, would like to open a bookstore, um, and we just kind of kicked the idea around, and no one else jumped in, so we thought, wow. we'll just reopen it. And we knew nothing at all about <laughs> and, and just kind of winged it, and you know. And it's changed a lot in the last in the last ten years, a lot. Well, um, I, I love what you've brought to it for well, sure. Thank you. Thank I, you. I, what I like about it, I love 
I love bookstore origin stories. Like I used to be a bookseller right after I got out of college because I had a very, you know, I chose the degree with the least amount of financial gain. So I <laughs> chose the first job with the least amount of financial gain. But I loved working in a bookstore, a good indie bookstore. So now I walk in and I I look at the staff picks and the yeah. books that are kind of highlighted. And that's what I, one of the things I love about the book you join is going in and like, yep, I like that book. I like that book. I like that book. So you kind of know yeah. it's a store you can kind of trust and find something good to read in as what, well as um, other stuff. What was your degree? Uh, French literature. Ah. Yeah, I went to a very expensive school on the California coast for the least lucrative degree possible, and I, then went two years in a bookstore. I I picked U.S. literature. It was the uh, <laughs> shortest course I could find. Was, uh, <laughs> There's a whole podcast topic right there. <laughs> the shortest course. Yeah, but... There's there's no obvious um, uh, career path after right. that, right? No, well, I I I didn't major in literature. I'm I'm out on this one. But I took a lot of literature classes because I loved to read, and it was right. That was the one way you could read fiction in college, mm -hmm. right? Was to take literature classes. Totally. So you play one on TV. I do. There you go. Yeah, for sure. So Dave, we as Christopher. Uh, uh, said in our, our introduction for today's episode, we're here to talk about our top 10 or top five, because there are right. three of us. So um, the top five books that we've read this year. So since you're our guest, we're going to let you go first. So okay. we please share with our listeners what your top five books were of 2019. I can't even believe we're at the end. <laughs> so... Do you want me to list all of them or just start with... Just with start. Them? Okay. So the first one is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Um, he's better known as a comedian yeah. and a host of The Daily Show. Mm -hmm. um, but he grew up in, in South Africa. It's his South African childhood during um, the apartheid. Mm. And then um, Nelson Mandela was released when he was six years old. Wow. Right. Um, so and the title of it is... Is is um, it's quite hard hitting. It's yeah. uh, you know it was a it was a crime for him to be born um, wow. because he was the child of mixed race parents, okay. right? And they would you know you, you were not allowed to have carnal intercourse with someone from a, a different wow. race. Mm -hmm. um, so his very existence was uh, proof that a crime had been committed. Um, so it's 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 very I mean it's harrowing, mm -hmm. um, but it's also really funny in places um and um i actually listened to a lot of it as well i was i was listening to it uh, as an audiobook and reading it when at the same time and he's he's uh, it, as an audiobook is I, I would definitely recommend yeah listening good, to, to him he's a good narrator as, and he does all the, the accents and he mimics it like he does a really good Nelson Mandela um, you know i think uh, i think one of the things that made that memoir resonate with so many people is because he is known for you know his the daily show and kind of being a comedian and that it really is a compelling memoir his own it's, story is as you say is really kind of harrowing it's incredible um yeah, it's it's I mean it's it's terrifying really. I mean, yeah. a, a, a country that was apartheid was the most um, extreme 
an organized form of racism. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, he could not go out in public with either of his parents yeah. because they would have been arrested. Wow. That's insane. Um, you know, he wasn't allowed to, if he was ever anywhere near his father, he couldn't say, Daddy, you, wanna, you know, he would always have to call him by his, by his name. Wow. Right. And, um, but, it was, it, you know, it's a story of his triumph over adversity and... Um, it's it's you know it points out the the ridiculousness uh, pettiness of, right. of racism and and, and um, it's and it's this love letter to his mother as well yeah. that brought mm-hmm. him up yeah it's 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 a really 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 good good book and it is it's, um, we were also just chatting before the podcast I think it's also in my view it's one of the few books that's bringing the you know the whole history of apartheid and the impact of apartheid to a generation of americans at least that aren't that familiar right. with it right yeah mm-hmm. so i thought it was compelling from that reason as well yes great cool. what's next any more on that no um how about children of ruin by adrian tchaikovsky He's a British author, mm-hmm. and he's a sci-fi author. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to read a lot of fantasy and sci-fi, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, partly as an escape from the sure. you know, news. Um, <laughs> Which itself is turning into fantasy every yeah. day. <laughs> well, I, just on a side note, from your perspective selling books, are a lot more people coming in and purchasing more fantasy science fiction these days? You know, I, I, I do see more of that. Um, and that may partly be because of the, the um, some of the shows on TV, like Game of Thrones oh, and so yes. on. Right. Uh-huh. You know, so it's become more, more mainstream. Mm-hmm. It used to be it's like a super geeky thing. Yeah. Um, but it's it's perfectly acceptable yeah. for, for people to, to read fantasy and, and, and sci-fi. Um, and we put them together in the store. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. A lot of people don't like that. It's, it's <laughs> sci-fi separate. And they're completely distinct. It's like um, mysteries and thrillers. Yeah. Yes. Um, but it's um, it's the follow up to um, Children of Time, mm-hmm. um, and it's this you know sweeping evolutionary space opera yeah. that takes wow. place over centuries, um, and um, it, <laughs> I, I can't really get into the plot of the second <laughs> one because it totally gives away the first, first one. one. Oh. You have to okay. read the first one. Okay, so right. this, these are dependent. It's it, yeah, you okay. ha- you would have to read Children of Time first. Okay. I, yeah, you, you probably. Um, but you know, it's, it's, has great characters and, um, the, uh, this one has octopi, octopuses, mm-hmm. is it octopus? Octopi, octopi. Listeners, let us know. I think it's octopi. <laughs> I, I think it's controversial <laughs> because <laughs> of the, the roots of it. Right, right, yes. right. So right. the Greek or Latin. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, 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 I've been told, I've been told that it's not octopi before. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, and, and we'll wait to hear from the listeners. I'm sure the there are people with opinions and, out yes, there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And giant spiders. It's, it's, it's a great one. It's a really good book. <laughs> Sounds like fun. So Adrian Tchaikovsky, which I think is a terrific name. I hope that's not a pen name. Like that's, a, that's an awesome name. Yeah. Especially to be writing in this genre. He's written quite a bit, right? Have you read quite a bit of him? I, I've only read those two, but I was... Okay. Uh, um, He's read a lot of, uh, written a lot of fantasy before mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of it you can't get as um, a paper book anymore. Really, you know, mm. books go out of print quite right. quite yeah. fast. Um, so I, w- I was I was looking it up last week because yeah. I, I wanted to read some more of his stuff mm-hmm. because I like him. And is this <laughs> skewed more for adults, or can you know can no, young kids, you know like the young adult you know. Uh, 
audience is so big right now. So is this is this skewed towards younger or older? How does no my um anybody? my son my son read it. Okay, um, he's thirteen, um, and he reads a lot of fantasy too. Okay, he's just started the Game of Thrones. Great. And, um, yeah, um, it, it, it there's nothing in it that's inappropriate for okay for good kids even. Cool. Great. What's the third one? Okay, the third one is the uninhabitable Earth, um, which is sounds very serious. Um, it's it's a fairly serious book. It's by David Wallace Wells, who I believe was the deputy editor of New York Magazine. Yeah, mm. and he wrote um, an article um, in 2017 mm-hmm. with the same title, and it went viral. Yeah, um, and. It's um, and then he he expanded on that to, yeah. to write the the book. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a feel good book. It's not going to make you feel better about the future, but <laughs> you should definitely read it. I mean, it's the most important um, thing. It's global you know, warming. It's it, global warming is. Um, yeah, there, there is nothing more important than that. I think I mentioned to you. I have the galley of this on my bedside to read pile, mm-hmm. and I keep putting it further down in the pile <laughs> because I just know it's going to be one of those nonfiction books that keeps me up at night. You know, yeah. it's, it's going to be one of those that really makes me think and also makes me worry. Um, right. potentially does he, does he, does he end it on a, hopeful um, note? Fa- relatively. Um, but you know, the, it could really be summed up by the very, the very first line in the book Okay, is it's worse much worse than you think. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's a that's, that's that's pretty a, ominous that's way to begin a book. <laughs> that's like, okay, I've got to, I've got to set aside time to approach this, yeah. but you're, but it also mm-hmm. sounds like it's going to suck you in and it's, really inform you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, um, it's very informative, although he doesn't bog you down yeah. with, with scientific jargon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and, uh, you know, in the second Part and and what he talks about is that the really important thing is that that every degree of warming has a massive difference. Yeah, um, like yeah. millions, of, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people will likely die yeah. from it. Wow! Um, yeah. And you know, if, if the the projections are somewhere between two and eight percent uh, sorry uh, degrees of warming yeah. by the end of this century it's insane um and if we could keep it down to somewhere between two and three it would have far less effect yeah um you know it's still going to be hell but yeah. um wow it 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 you know it, it's sort of potentially uninhabitable earth if, yeah. if we get any approach eight eight degrees yeah so maybe that's one you want to buy now and read after the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> or it you may know, make you appreciate the it, holidays it more. Be, perhaps right? well, it might. <laughs> a lot of us approach New Year's with like resolutions in mind yeah, and mindset changes. So Yeah, could change behavior. Yes, I think it's it, I think everyone should read it for sure. Awesome. Um Okay, is that one? Next up. Next up. Um, so there, there is... The Tommy name. Orange. Tommy Orange. Have you yeah, read that one? I have read that one. Yeah, I like this one a lot. Um, Tommy Orange was born in Oakland, mm-hmm. and it's the story of um, the urban Native American experience. Mm-hmm. There's no 
Kevin Costner or John Wayne in this one. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, yeah, it's um, it's the sort of urban experience, and, and a lot of the, and the the idea that the the title comes from Gertrude Stein's right. quote. Um, There's no there there, yeah, yeah. and by that I take it to mean that the um, the city that she knew has changed so completely right. that she didn't recognize it, and then right. that's the. Native American experience. Exactly. Um, wow. And so it's, um, you know, that, that this, this idea of not knowing where you belong mm-hmm. for any of the characters um, and, you know, who are we and so on. Um, and the structure, I really like the structure yeah. of it, where it's each chapter is told from the point of view of a different mm-hmm. character, wow. you know, and some are more sympathetic than yep. others. Um, and some are humorous, some of the, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's different stories. They're quite poignant. Um, and they, the different strands kind of go towards this one event in the, the powwow. The powwow, right. Um, and, um, it's, uh, I, I, I like the, I like that sort of structure to it. It's the sort of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. um, you know, without dragons. <laughs> <laughs> set in Oakland. That's the blurb for the reprint edition right, right there. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and it's quite it's quite hopeful. It's, um, it's it is. It's not a downer. I like uh, a couple of things that made this book resonate for me and for many librarians is we're always looking for diverse literature, and you know Native American literature has, uh, you know, with through authors like Louise Erdrich and mm-hmm. others has started to bubble up, but it's still yeah. very few writers. So right. we're always kind of looking for someone that new writer that we can add to the canon that we try to provide people that we're serving. But as well, I just like that it's shining a light on this culture, yeah. especially in urban settings and native American culture tends to really just get buried yeah. and you don't, you just don't even think it's there. And so, you know, it was kind of neat to see that, mm-hmm. um, pulled out here, you know? And is it, is it fiction, Dave, or is mm-hmm. it nonfiction? Mm-hmm. It's, it's fiction. fiction. Okay. The, the prologue, he starts with a, you know a, few, a couple of pages of the the, the history of, mm-hmm. of Native American um, mm-hmm. oppression. It's it's, right. it's really good. Yeah. Um, if you just read that, it's really good. Yeah. But the, the rest of it's completely yeah. different. Okay. Cool. Sounds like a good one. Yes, it is. And your last book. I can't wait for you to talk about this one because I'm taking this book on vacation with me. So. <laughs> uh, so so I, I don't want to give anything away. Um, <laughs> It's This is Washington Black by S.E. Adijin, who's a um, Canadian mm-hmm. author. Um, and this is her third book. Um, her second one was um, Half-Blood Blues. Mm-hmm. Did you read that one? No. Uh, I didn't read it either, but I'm going to because I really, you, really you like, like this, this one. one. Um, and that won tons of awards. Mm-hmm. And this one did as well. Um, if you like your literature with awards, <laughs> this, is the, <laughs> this is the book to get. Um, no pressure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, so it's the story of George Washington Black. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously a slave name. Um, and he's he's 11 uh, years old when you meet him. Okay. Uh, on a sugar plantation in Barbados. Yeah. Um, and then um, you would expect it to be kind of this earnest, bleak, a story of um, colonial slavery, mm-hmm. but it's not that. It turns into this uh, page-turning adventure story. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. You like it? it? Sounds awesome. I think it goes places too, like yeah. without really giving much away. It doesn't it? It ends in Morocco or something. 
yeah. So well, well, what it's a ish. real adventure. When when you described it to me, what captured my imagination about it was that it's narrated by this eleven year old, and so <laughs> I I love that, and I can't wait to. Well, he doesn't hear stay eleven. He, he, he grows. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> so I'll take that adventure yes. with him. I think you're so right. I can't wait. I think. Um, Another thing that stands out about me about this book, at least in talking with other librarians about it, is that it's a. I think it's one of this year's hand sellers, right? It's a it's a book you can really put in someone's hands, hands. with a, a Which recommendation. Is what Dave did for me yeah, in the store, exactly, right? And yes, handed and it has to a me. great cover. It yes, does it have does. A great cover. <laughs> yeah, I could. There's a whole other podcast in selling books by their covers too. Right. Just like buying wine. By the, <laughs> buying wine by the I label. Love to do that. <laughs> Say that. <laughs> those are very those are great div- selections. Yeah, d- really diverse titles. And pressures on you now, yeah, Stace. What are I your five? I don't think picks? I'm that diverse, unfortunately. Well, okay. So um, some of these I've kind of mentioned before on the mm-hmm. podcast. Um, my first title is Nine Perfect Strangers. I have a few palate cleansers. Yeah. That's all right. On my we list. talked about that, yes. right? So, and I'm not embarrassed by it anymore. Um, so, Nine Perfect Strangers is Leanne Moriarty's newest book. Came out uh, in paperback this year, yeah. um, and it's a little a modern day Agatha Christie ish. Yeah. Um, not quite, but um, it's a great it's a great story. It really, like as her all her books do, they just suck you in from mm-hmm. the beginning. You really don't want to put it down. Um, this one gets a little a little crazy, but uh, <laughs> these nine strangers convene at this spa in very remote part of Australia, and mm-hmm. I don't want to give any spoilers, so I don't want to say too much, but things go south rather quickly. <laughs> Hijinks ensue. Hijinks ensue. So, but I like that that concept of like, let's bring a bunch of strangers and put them on a train or on an island yes. or in a spa now, the right. 21st century totally. version. And it's, it's told similarly that, you know, each chapter is a, the, there's a different person that mm-hmm. uh, is tell is narrating what's going on. It kind of focuses on a different, I, I'm pretty sure I remember it that she does tell it in third person, mm-hmm. but each character is a different focus of yeah. each chapter and getting their viewpoint of what's going on. And it's not just from the standpoint, you don't just learn about the people visiting the spa, but it's really about the people who are running the spa too oh, okay. and how their stories unfold. Um, and it, you you want to get to the end to figure out well what's next what's right. going to happen so it was a really engaging book my my 20 year old daughter she read it too mm-hmm. and she loved it so Good. it appeals to a wide range of of ages so and the the characters range in age as well so there's something for everybody. <laughs> in uh, the spa. Yeah, in the spa. And then uh, my next book, um, I think, is getting a lot of traction. It's been on the hot list, I think, all year long, and that's Daisy Jones and the Six. And that's by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who also, she's published a lot of books fairly recently. She also wrote The Seven Husbands of Elizabeth or of Evelyn Hugo, which was a great 
book too. Um, Can we just pause here? Yeah. And you know, is there something about like, is there numerology involved in your book picks? Like nine I, perfect strangers. Those are the, the only, six, those are the only maybe. two with okay. numbers in the names. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll I interrupted. Have to, I'll have to watch the, you know, look at that from now on. Do I always pick books? <laughs> Hmm, maybe I'm drawn to them. But no, I was really excited to read Daisy Jones and the Six when it came out, and it's in hardback. It's not in paperback yet. Um, Because I love the idea of this book. So it is about this, and it is a fictional band. There was lots of debate. Like, I know lots of people who read this book who went and looked Daisy Jones and the Six up. So it's this, <laughs> um, it's this fictional band in like the early 70s, kind of late 60s, kind of like a, a bigger mamas and the papas, you know, like mm-hmm. that genre. And um, the book is told, it's like through pseudo interviews. I mean, that's why it seems so real because each chapter, the author is interviewing members of the band. Yeah. And getting their perspective on how things unraveled and Daisy, how she came into the band and, you know, uh, kind of became this, uh, you know, Yoko Ono-ish force, you know, um, so to speak. But... um, yeah, and how they got super famous, and it was a really fun... It was so much fun to read this book. I read it in three days. Literally, I started it on... I checked it, or checked it out of the library on a Friday, and I finished it on Sunday. Awesome. Um, it reads really quickly. So, isn't that, Dave, you probably know this. There are multiple books out, like, uh, kind of like... It's like Laurel Canyon, that whole mm-hmm. 60s, 70s music scene having a moment. Because I think yeah. there's a Janis Joplin book coming out. And there's a few, yeah, right? Well, you, a lot, most of them are more um, biographies yeah. uh, rather than the, the fictional one. Yeah. There, was, um, there was another one that I can't remember what it was, but I read um, maybe about five years ago that was similar mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. It was really good. Yeah. But... Um, I read so many books. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, I've, I've heard the same thing. I've had a lot of feedback from people that really, really enjoyed that book. Yeah. And I have it on my nightstand because of that. It's um, it's worth it. I mean, you'll yeah. enjoy It's just, I think people mm-hmm. of, of our age would really, you know, gravitate to this story. Right. And the way that it's told really resonates with like the MTV generation because it's the way the reporter's interviewing. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little twist at the end. But cool. I'm not going <laughs> to reveal that. Um, so my third book um, I've talked about on the podcast before, and that's The Testaments by Margaret Atwood. Amazing sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. She just knocked it out of the park and I don't know what feedback you have you gotten has it sold well is it are people talking about it um it's been selling well it's the you know Mm -hmm. it's the number one um bestseller and also The Handmaid's Tale is Mm. the the number one um uh paperback really because of that Uh, right people you know who hadn't read The Handmaid's Tale want to read that first right Uh, and there's a whole generation that have seen the series without reading the the Mm -hmm. book um, but yeah, it's, it's had great reviews. I haven't read it yet, but I'm um, looking forward to it. She just did such an amazing job picking up 
on some of the characters. Not, you know, it's not a direct one to one picking up right where the Handmaid's Tale leaves off. You know, there's time that's gone on between, just as there has in in real life. But to have so much time go by between writing the first book and writing the second, yeah, she didn't lose a beat in the characters that are reflected in both books. They they're really consistent right. and um, and you learn some new things about them, which is great. And you don't have to watch the TV show. To get it. Do you, yeah. do you know if she had been writing it for years or if she... I, it um, seemed to... The, the interviews that I've read with her, I don't think she had. I think it kind of was approached to her, how about a sequel? Mm-hmm. And she... I think she had resisted a sequel for a long time. And I think what I remember reading from interviews with her, her saying that the timing of all the events that are kind of going on, the the challenges to women's reproductive rights that's right. happening in this country right now, everything that's going on politically, I think she just felt it this was time it was time. The moment was yeah. right. Yeah. So and she just did an amazing job and I loved. I didn't really. I didn't love The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was good. I enjoyed reading it, but didn't stick with me at all. This book was. This book stuck with yeah. me. The characters stuck with me. It was really. I just loved reading it. Cool. So, Are you going to give any as gifts this season? Probably. Yeah. I probably will. Yeah. To certain certain people. Certain people for sure. Um, so the next, my next book is another palate cleanser, easy peasy read, uh, when life gives you Lululemons, it's this, another sequel. I don't, when you, <laughs> when, a, when an author writes like two sequels to a book, can you, are they still called sequels? Uh, is like well, the I third one called the, the sequel or a trequel? Is what's a trequel? <laughs> did you make up a new I word? Think I did. There's a trilogy if it's an arcing story. But it, it's not an arcing. Yeah. yeah. So okay. I, I will sequels. go with trequel. We'll see if we can make that a thing. <laughs> um, Sounds like something you spread on toast. Right? <laughs> that, that doesn't taste good. <laughs> or a tricycle, a tricycle exactly. Yes. So Lauren Weisberger, who wrote The Devil Wears Prada, she's the author. This story focuses on on the character Emily, who uh, was the first assistant in The Devil Wears Prada. The kind of snarky character. The kind of snarky character. And it's kind of funny because... As I was reading this, I could only like see and hear the character from the movie, you know, the who Emily, Emily Blunt. Blunt. Thank you, um, Emily Blunt. You know, leave us a comment if you're listening. <laughs> we love you. Um, she but call. she, um, so I could only hear like her voice when that character was presented in the mm-hmm. story. But it's just, it's just an easy, fun read about Emily's life post Miranda Priestley and, you know, and then her brings in a couple of new characters, you know, her, her buddies, but nobody else really, I think that Andrea makes one appearance in the book, uh, but that's, that's kind of it, but it's just, it's really fun and, um, it's like a spinoff, right? Like it's like it when a TV show does a spinoff because there's a resonating side yes, character. Absolutely. Is that what it is? It, okay. it totally is a spinoff. Yeah. Not a trequel. A spinoff is a better. <laughs> I like trequel. <laughs> What's a Lululemon? Lululemon is the hot 
over, well, I don't want to say over, the hot um, athletic athleisure wear store for women. Okay. So when you're going to buy your yoga clothes, that's, you know, the place to go. So, you know, the, the, if you have some money to spend, you go to Lululemon. If you don't, you order on Amazon. But that's there you go. Now Lulu, it makes sense. Lululemon is the, <laughs> and so when you know what she frequently talks about is the story is set in the suburbs in Connecticut. Okay, really wealthy suburbs, and and all the women run around in their Lululemons. Ah, that's the reference. Okay. So, and then finally for some culture, <laughs> um, I couldn't wait for the Elton John official autobiography to get released, which Mm -hmm. it finally did. It's called Me, and it is fascinating about his life. And it really, I have... Another 1970s musician. Yes, and I I love reading, I love those, these autobiographies about these people that you have an impression of. Mm Mm-hmm. And then to see if your impression is correct. And, you know, I've, I think, yeah, but well, I've been, I've had some information because I've seen him. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to see him on his red piano tour at Caesars Palace in Mm -hmm. Las Vegas. And he's very chatty. (laughs) And on that tour, he was very chatty and very funny and great wit and sarcastic and I can totally when I'm reading this I I can tell where it's really him talking and where it might be a ghostwriter because his he's such a big personality yeah and he his record Daniel was the first record I ever purchased Mm -hmm. with my own money showing Mm -hmm. how old I am (laughs) Um, but it but stands I, the test was, of time. I, yes, it does. And I've always been a fan. I've always loved Elton John my whole life. And um, it's really, it's a, it's a beautiful book. So so uh, his biopic that he, I don't know if he, he produced it, but he approved yes, came out this year. Rocket Man. Rocket Man. So which yeah. is better, the book or the movie? I I think I'm enjoying. I love the movie. I thought the movie was great, but mm-hmm. the movie was definitely kind of a fantasy interpretation of his life. You know, there were lots of elements of of metaphysical, magical you know, realism. Magical, yes, that's a good way to put it. But the book is really more, you know, straight up. It's very, it's linear, and um, you know, starts when he was a little boy and. And and that was that how he portray how his boyhood was portrayed in the movie is very different from okay. the book. So so if you like the movie, you'd probably still get something new out of the book. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Awesome. And it's and there are beautiful pictures. You know, as autobiographies always have <laughs> pictures. Always look at there the pictures first. There are two sets of pictures in this. In this Ooh, it's a bonus yeah, one. So um, <laughs> yeah, really, really, really wonderful story. Or you know. Tale. I mean, it's just a great um, telling of what sure. his life and what's informed him to be who he is and what he does. So, yeah, that's awesome. Really encourage it. Cool. So, Those are good selections. Thank you. Yeah. Next year, I'm 
writing all my books down so I don't forget <laughs> everything that I've read. So, Christopher, what about you? What are your top five? So I am sticking to five. I'm not going to do my normal add in a couple extra, but it's not easy, right? When you <laughs> no. stop to think about what you've read over a year, it's really like, wow. Yeah. I, there's there's always the, what is not going to make the list thing that you angst over, right? Yeah. So. Well, some, a couple of your books are books that I read too, that I couldn't put on my list because you'd put, you did oh, your good. list first. But now you know, so. you can react to them. I will. So uh, mine's nonfiction heavy. Uh, you guys have uh, sprinkled in fiction and nonfiction. So um, yeah, let me just jump in. The first one is called Spearhead by Adam Makos. It's nonfiction. It came out earlier this year. Makos is a, is a writer of World War II stuff. He's kind of an expert in World War II. Like me, his grandfather was in the war. And so he was just kind of developed an interest of it. And I kind of have a light interest in it because of this, for the same reason, just, you know, my grandfather didn't tell a whole lot of stories about it, but I am kind of like interested in what he went through mm -hmm. um, by reading other similar stories. So this one is great, and it uh, got a lot of really good reviews. He is um, a really good researcher, and so he follows the story of two basically tank battalions or whatever in the Battle of the Bulge from the American perspective and the German perspective mm -hmm. and really focuses in on the individuals. And at the, the culmination of the story, it's really two individuals, an American and a German, who um, are in a confrontation in the city of Cologne firing at each other and just like what all the events that led up to it on both sides. This is one of the first events that was filmed. So it was known wow. at the time and it was really compelling. Makos does a great job of um, not just reciting the events, but actually talking about the human stories. So you really learn about everyone who's involved and he doesn't shy away from the fear or the apprehension or the excitement or the courage or whatever. And then also just the death. Right. Yeah. Um, and it really brings it home. What is interesting about this story is he, he, again, he's a great researcher. So he's, he's interviewed the people who were involved who are still alive. Mm. And at the wow. end they come together and there are YouTube videos where you can go on and see these two now old men who were, on a square in Cologne in 1945, firing at each other. Wow. Now they're coming to meet each other for the first time. And it's really just, it's heart warming and heart melting at the same time because it was such a tragic situation. How, how old were the men when he inter? I mean, like this late is... teens, early twenties. These are all young so, boys, right? So when he's interviewing them now, they're, they're like in their eighties, nineties, wow. they're they're and they're dying off. So yeah. he's kind of lucky to have, Fortunate yeah. to have um, got two of them that were still alive and right. mobile enough to to meet each other. Right. Um, but I really recommend it for people who, like me, kind of like to read about history or war um, or just want to read a really compelling human drama. Yeah. Um, it really brings it, brings it home. The second book, which, you know... Stepping from lighthearted to equally lighthearted <laughs> is... Um, a different topic. This book came out this year. It's by Adam Hickenbotham. It's called Midnight in Chernobyl. Came out earlier this year. Chernobyl's anniversary kind of has hit the zeitgeist. HBO had a series. Right. A number of books coming out and articles coming out. This was the nonfiction book that kept me up at night this year. Um, 
it's a good like sink yourself into it. It's a good inch and a half thick. So you can really just dive into it. And what comes out in this book, which is again, extensively researched, you really learn all about what was going on is that it's a story of human foul, you know, um, fallibility. I don't think that's the right word, but fallibility. fallibility. Thank you. Human fallibility, um, which comes from human nature and organizational nature, um, kind of combining and culminating in a really tragic event that brings out the worst of both, right? And then compellingly switches to bringing out the best of both because you have people who have courage in the moment and are really just trying to rescue the people, prevent the meltdown and all of that. And it really just becomes a page turner at that point. So I've heard you talk about this book and I've read parts of it. I haven't read the whole thing because it's a little heavy for me, mm-hmm. but um, I've, I've <laughs> heard you talk about this book as a study in leadership. It is, right? Because you know we talk about this a lot in our organization, mm-hmm. is what makes a good leader and what are the qualities that come out in moments of crises. And here there are people who, when those moments come, they fail and yeah. they fail openly just as leaders. They Everything that that compelled that gives them the authority just kind of evaporates because at the end of the day, there are a house of cards, but then there are the people on the ground or other people who really just step in and shine in that moment and who really get the stuff done or inspire people or what have you. It's, it's, yeah, if you're leading an organization, this is it's a good, a good book. one to read. It's a good book to read. Dave is, is a book like this. Has this, I know it's, I've seen it in your store. So is this a book that people have picked up a lot? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> this is not one of our big, big yeah. sellers. It, the title's um, kind of daunting. It is. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's the kind of thing we don't sell a lot of, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. Um, but um, it sounds really interesting. I'd like to read it. And I, I know a lot of people yeah. saw the show, yeah. the, the Chernobyl show. I think it's it spurred... This is part of a movement to understand more about Chernobyl. I just saw yeah. something on PBS NewsHour recently about tourism at the site, you know. Right, I saw that. It's crazy. It's totally crazy, wow. especially if you read this book and you think, I wouldn't go anywhere near that site yeah. for another half million years. Um, but I, I saw something that it was a, a wildlife preserve as well, like yeah. um, um, deer and all these wildlife mm-hmm. have moved in. Yeah. Wow. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> well, what's interesting from that perspective is in the book, he starts with the creation of that community and it was built around that reactor, mm-hmm. right? So it was built for those workers. Right. So you're kind of like starting with nature. Here's man coming in and creating something big and then it all goes south. Nature takes over again, mm-hmm. right? Right. It will. It yeah. will. And the other thing that, you know, it echoes something you said earlier about um, the uninhabitable earth. I read a review or an interview of Adam Higginbotham where he was talking about HBO and his book and the research that he did. And um, he said, you know, there are a lot of myths and legends that have come up about Chernobyl in the last Mm -hmm. few decades. And he had to cut through them. And he said cutting through them actually got sometimes to far more terrifying truth. Wow. So... You know, it's not it's not a fun book. It's right. not a light book, but it is something that really will um, inform and resonate. And um, I've recommended it quite a few times. Great. So let's What's move next? on to something a little lighter. Uh, Timothy Egan, who's a great mm-hmm. author, he's written quite a bit. He's run one awards, nonfiction author. This one's called A Pilgrimage to Eternity. It just came out this November. And Timothy Egan, he's like 
kind of older than our generation, early 60s, um, and, you know, Irish-American Catholic upbringing, he's reaching that stage in life where he's kind of questioning his faith and the church, the Catholic church and what have you. And so he decides to go on this adventure Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, on an ancient pilgrimage route from Canterbury to Rome to walk it. Um, And I didn't really realize this, but there's a lot of pilgrimage routes that are being resurrected across Europe and elsewhere. And so this is a marked route that you can start out at in Canterbury and you get your little book and a stamp and then you just get it stamped until you end up in Rome. And then I think you get a prize or something. Did you meet the Pope? That was his goal. Oh, okay. So I won't give that away. Um, but what I like about this, but what attracted me to it is I like history, Mm -hmm. right? So it totally delivered on that point everywhere he stops. He, he goes into what I like to go into, which is like, What's the history of this place? Mm -hmm. What did the pilgrims who were here 500, 600 years ago experience? And then also what he brings out is like the history of the Catholic Church and then the Reformation and Protestant Church and all the bloodshed that came out of that as he goes through France and into Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that was like Calvinist centers and what have you. And it, it just really what shaped... Europe today, as well as individual little human stories. He meets other pilgrims. He divulges more of his own self through all yeah. of this and why he's questioning his faith, um, which is really, really compelling and so kind it, of surprising. Is it very travelogy narrative type? A little bit, a little bit, but a lot of it is really like what's going through his mind. Like, why Got am it. I doing this? Cool. You know? Um, so I'll give away two little tidbits that don't give away the story. Okay. Um, he does end up in Rome because it's a pilgrimage. He wouldn't have sure. finished the book contract probably without it. <laughs> but uh, a couple of things that were my favorite little tidbits that I learned. One is a monastery going up to the pass out of Switzerland into the across the Alps and into Italy. There's a monastery that you stay at called St. I forget what it's called. I forget the name. But it's where St. Maurice is remains are interred, relics, what have you. And I didn't realize, so St. Maurice is the first black saint. Oh. He was born in Africa. He was martyred for not killing other Christians, which resonates with what he's talking about, having just walked through mm-hmm. Switzerland. Um, and uh, this monastery has this, I forget what it's called. I think it's uh, unending psalmody or something like that, where the monks chant continuously. And when your session is ready, another choir walks in and they pick up the chant so that the prayer is unceasing wow. over time. So he says it's been going on for 900 years. <laughs> I, I, being the librarian, wikipedia it. Um, <laughs> apparently it went on for like 300 years, which is still pretty, pretty insane. Long. But I thought that was just kind of a magical little thing, like sure. you're on this pilgrimage and you end up in this place where the music never ceases. And then a little bit further up that pass, he sees St. Bernard's because you're at St. Bernard Pass and lo and behold, that's where the dogs are. (laughs) (laughs) So there are still St. Bernard's up there and he talks a little bit about why they're very large and gregarious. So they were great rescue dogs. They had big paws. It's like having, you know, snowshoes. Um, And they aren't used anymore because there are better modern techniques for rescuing people who are going on a pilgrimage to Rome over the Alps in winter. Um, but the, you can still go see the dogs. So um, <laughs> great book. It's much easier and shorter than Midnight in Chernobyl. Um, and, you know, again, you know, it's it's a, a powerful personal story along the way. And I won't give any more of that away. My fourth book is also nonfiction. And this is also a trek. It's by Porter Fox. It came out 
last year, a paperback came out this year, and it's called Northland, which is, if you live in the northern United States, mm-hmm. Northland was kind of what you called where you lived. Yeah. Kind of like the Southwest or the South or what have you, or the Northeast. So... Porter Fox, some of you may recognize him. He's an outdoors writer. A few years ago, he came out with a book called Deep, The Story of Skiing and the Future of Snow. Oh, okay. um, so I'm hoping at least one other person in Mammoth has read that book. Um, but he's a great writer. And it, this is a little bit more travel loggy. Okay. He takes three years to traverse the northern border of the United States from Maine to Washington State, which used to be, when you think about it, far more an important border than the southern border ever was. Um, There's a lot of battles and what have you that happened over that. It's great for armchair travelers. If you want to have a variety of experience, he goes by canoe, on foot, and car, in a cargo (laughs) ship through the Great Lakes. He meets a ton of different people. There are just characters that crawl out of the woodwork in this book. He talks a lot about the indigenous history of the areas Mm -hmm. that he's crossing. It's it's a really rewarding book, and he succeeds in the end, which you kind of always want to see happen, even though you know he's going to make it. So, so. Is, this, is this gonna is this book going to spurn tons of people now traversing the border between the U.S. and Canada? Wouldn't that be cool? That I, think, be, that I think I think it'd be, be really cool neat. because I think there's a lot you know that we don't learn about the north part right. of our own country. We learn about you know where battles of the Civil War happened or where yeah. the immigration issues are today. One thing I found interesting is that he says, like, after 9-11, the border really became far more controlled than it ever was in the yeah. past. So there was no longer crossing the river right. into Canada to go fishing for a day. Yeah. You know, right. you had to be on the watch out for border yeah. patrol agents and stuff like that. So it's very serious. But uh, again, there are just a variety um, of cultures up there that I just never... Yeah. never heard of before. So Northland by Porter Fox. Okay. We have it in the library and it's still in print. You can get it at the bookstore. So my, f- you do have it? Yeah. Awesome. Because <laughs> see, I know the bookie joint. That's, yes. that's, they have all the good books. So my last book is a novel. I'll lighten it up a little bit. I love but this But just book. a little bit. You read this I love book. This book. It's called yes. The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. Came out uh, in hardback, I think a couple years ago, and now it's out in paperback and audio. This is a book that I think really put, in my view, put Rebecca Mackay on the map. Mm-hmm. She'd written great books before that. This one came out, was nominated for a ton of awards and won a few. Um, it was nominated for the National Book Award and the Pulitzer. It's about uh, a group of college-age friends in Chicago in 1980s Chicago, early 90s Chicago, um, and just you know, kind of like almost a coming of age thing yeah. with different people. Aid sets in, and so it starts to pilfer that whole story, put right. holes in that story. And what I like about what she did with this is she matched it with kind of two parallel stories. Mm-hmm. So, one of the threads from this group of college age friends in 80s Chicago is they're working with an older woman mm-hmm. who had lived in her 20s in World War One and post war World War One Paris. Right. Had affairs, artists literature, all that was happening with all those expats. And the parallels there is there are two lost generations happening there. Yeah. The the men who went off to war in World War One right. and the people who were dying of AIDS in mm-hmm. 80s Chicago. Um, and she parallels that, ties it together yeah. kind of nicely and subtly. And then also one c- character from this book, uh, a young woman, goes on to have a child, get married and have a child and then eventually becomes estranged from that child. Right. And so there's a, a modern day setting of this woman reconnecting with her mm-hmm. daughter. 
Right. Which is also pretty compelling. So there's kind of three, same group of friends, same people, but three time periods being examined here and and the potential of a new lost generation. And I won't give it away. Um, It's a book that, you know, you'd want to dive into and you get all those things. There's there's the three hanky moments. There's the funny moments. There's kind of like the compelling narrative. Um, And then for some of us, it's also kind of a little bit of nostalgia for the 80s. For um, sure, not dating ourselves here, but um, what did you think of the book, Stace? I, I just, I just loved it for for ev- all the reasons you just described. I, the characters were so vivid, so beautifully portrayed and described, and you didn't doubt for one second anything they were doing. Right, that it was contrived at all. It was just what they would have been doing, mm-hmm. you know, if they were real people. So I. I just, it really resonated. It was great. And you grew up in it. near Chicago. I grew up, yeah, I grew up on the north side. So a lot of the places that she was describing where they were, some of them I didn't know, but um, a lot of them I, oh yeah, I've been there. And when they, when they drive up to Wisconsin to go <laughs> see the old lady, I made that drive Many, 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 <laughs> many times. times, right? Yeah. Not to, not to see a, an old relative though, but <laughs> I won't go into. Okay. That's, that's a whole another other novel. story. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But I, I love this book. So yeah, this one's yeah. called The Great Believers by Rebecca, Rebecca Mackay, M-A-K-K-A-I. We will yeah. put all 15 titles that we talked about on our website. So for those of you who have been taking down notes or want to come back and revisit yes. any of these titles, They're you can there. get them and the links and that way you can go to the bookie joint or your bookseller or the library and, we and read them. We'll also put a link to the bookie joint and Absolutely. all of the contact information so you can go see Dave Thank yeah. you. <laughs> and buy your Christmas presents. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Dave, thank you so yeah, much thank you, Dave. for your time this morning and great to see you as yes. always. Yes, great to see you we'll too. We'll be in the store soon for sure. <laughs> Shopping. I look, I look forward yeah. to it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Happy holidays to you, Dave. Happy holidays. Yeah, and happy holidays to all our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this special episode, the Top Picks of 2019 episode of Oxygen Starved. Yes, and thank you all so much. Uh, We appreciate you stopping by the podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. So other people can find us more easily. We'd really appreciate a few minutes of your time to do that. As we mentioned, please check out our website. We'll have all the information from this show listed on there. You can find that at oxygenstarvedpodcast.com and our Instagram page, O2Starved. Thanks, y'all, so much for listening. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. In Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.